Energy. Hey, we're uh, we're about to start a two-week service on uh, two-week series on heaven, and we got a couple different books, um, even one for kids. It's kind of a, an adaptation of uh, Randy Alcorn's Heaven book um, for kids. But there's a couple things at the book table, so just keep the book table in mind as you're exiting this morning. There's some great resources there. But uh, we're taking two weeks on heaven. We're still in the book of John. Kind of fun that the holidays are over. Kind of get back into the groove and. We've got some amazing stuff coming up, um, two weeks on heaven, and then Jesus' passage where he talks about being the truth, the way, and the life, and then uh, we have four weeks on Jesus um, talking about uh, with the metaphor, him being the vine and, and we're the branches, and kind of, there's a whole lot of things buried in there, so it's kind of a really cool little um, run we get to go on. I guess you, I never really thought I'd say that about sermons, you know, you probably didn't either, like fun run of sermons, category fallacy, right? Uh, Well, let's pray, and then uh, John 14 is where we're going to be. Father, we just come to you this morning um, and just ask that somehow, some way, you would take and do something that's of you, Uh, that uh, it wouldn't just be motivational, it wouldn't just be instructional, but somehow you would take us and rip us out of wherever we're at, and you would do something um, that's of you, that we would be able to experience you, hear from you. Um, sense your presence, um, whatever it is that you would have for us, but just let the time that we have this morning not be in vain, but something that will glorify you uh, and have you at the center. We pray that in Christ's name, amen. Uh, so we're in John 14, and we've been in uh, the book of John, and, and where we're at in this section here is, um, it's interesting, like when you just jump into the book of John, like right in chapter 14, we do that a lot in scripture. We just jump in somewhere. And it'd be like if I wrote you a letter or, or wrote you kind of a story and you just jumped in somewhere and kind of picked it up there. There's so much of the context that gets lost. Uh, and so in some sense, as we come to John 14, we need to experientially almost have it as if we've read the previous 13 chapters in the last 20 minutes. You know, it's like we've We've been reading through this thing, talking about Jesus and sharing Jesus' words and, and kind of as the, the narrative flows and then all of a sudden we get here, but we're kind of fresh on it. Does that make sense? And we're not just like showing up and, and, and picking up some words. And what's going on here is that Jesus is kind of launching into um, what, what's really his farewell kind of address. And this is kind of a typical thing that would have been very common uh, for, for a Jew of that day and age to when you know you're dying, when you know you're going to your death, that you kind of take the most important people, uh, your family, you see it in the Old Testament with the blessings on sons and things like that, but you bring them around you and you pass on what's most important and and you kind of commission it off that way and, and you boil it down. And this is really what Jesus is doing in the next three chapters is he's taking his disciples and he's no longer public, he's just... Um, He's given his last words, and he's kind of commissioned in that. And it's kind of fun in the sense that if, if you ever really wanted to know what would Jesus say if he was going to boil it down, that's really what we get in the next couple chapters. Like if Jesus really boiled down kind of the, the, the essence of what he's trying to say, that's what we get in the next couple chapters. And when we pick it up here in John 14, this is what we get, and it's on the screen for you. But we'll just read it one time through, and uh, we're going to kind of try and pull three things out of this passage this morning, and then uh, we've got three more that we're going to kind of broaden out next week in talking about heaven. 
Um, and so I'll go ahead and read it. It says this, uh, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So the first thing I want to kind of pull out of this is just simply this idea that I think we lose in, in our modern context, but that heaven is relational. The first thing is that heaven is relational. So I've got some highlighted things here. Um, the two I've highlighted here are in my Father's house, and then ultimately Jesus says at the, at the bottom that where I am, where I'm present, where I'm going to be, I want you to be able to be there with me. And so there's two kind of things here, um, his Father's house and then being where Jesus is at. And they both speak to this idea of heaven being a relation, relational place. Um, in the Old Testament, it was, a, it was a patriarchal culture. And what that meant was like the dad, like and there's a couple maybe generations underneath, all living on the land kind of together. And then when the patriarch kind of dies, he leaves it to the next in charge, so to speak. And they kind of all share this family land that gets passed down that way. And, and you know, you see it with the prodigal son. In some sense, he's coming back to the father's house. And it's a big estate in, in that sense. And there's a lot of rooms and the other son's still living and working there. And the father's house is where everybody gathers. And, and the father is the center there. He's the one holding it together. Um, and it's a relational thing. It's a together thing. We... We're so kind of focused on everyone having their own house and all, our, you know, all the kids having their own bedroom and all this other stuff that we really lose sight of the idea that, that in, in that culture, the father's house is it's his, it's his place. It's his space. It's where he's at. It's where he's in the center. And when we come to that place, we're now in his family. We're where he's at. It's a relational concept. Does that make sense? Jesus kind of picks up again at the end here. He says that where I am, you may be also. And he's, he's really saying that ultimately, I want you to be with me. That there's a, a fellowship aspect, a closeness, a proximity uh, about this thing called heaven that you have to understand. Now, to really get at the, the depth of it, we got to understand what happened with original sin. And so um, in Genesis with sin, you see the punishment for that sin as banishment. Um, it's being kicked, Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden. And the garden is where? Amongst many things. It's where the presence of God was. Okay? And so by being banished from the garden, they're being banished from the presence of God. And so all throughout the Old Testament, there's priests and there's a sacrificial system so that they could go through ritual uh, symbolic acts to, to gain the ability to be back in the presence of God um, where God was at the temple. But you have these priests, you got all these layers in between so that people in some sense can get close in proximity with God because that's ultimately where it's at. That's, that's the center, that's the idea, it's the goal is that it's a family thing, that it's a relational thing that we're with God. And so even hell, we're, we're talking about heaven, not hell, but if we were talking about hell, there's a lot of misconceptions um, with hell. It's, it's about punishment. It's kind of what we made it ever since the Puritans. And not that they meant it that way, but that's how we kind of read it backwards. But that it's all about you burning 
and the goal is your torment. Um, and that's not really the concept. Uh, the imagery for hell in Scripture was kind of the dump outside of town that's on fire and, and, and it's where the outcasts are and it's the, the worst place to be and you're not in the center, you're kind of on, on the periphery, you're cast out. Um, also the, the underworld where lava is and fire and stuff like that. And so instead of going and being with God, you're going the opposite direction and you're going to the underworld in some sense and, and it's horrible. You don't want to be there and it's torment and it's all these other things but the idea, the essence of it is that it's distance from God, that you're being banished from the presence of God, that where you really want to be is where God's at. And so when sin is kind of uh, no longer there, it's not the barrier between us and God, we're, we're restored into the right um, kind of context, what God designed, what he wanted, and that's close proximity, close relationship with him. Uh, we're his children, we're his creation. He wants us with him. And so this idea of heaven we can sometimes say it's the opposite of hell. And so if hell is about torment, what's heaven about? Pleasure, right? I mean, it's about um, my mansion. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd like a mansion that's got a big screen, you know, and I'd like a man, you know, and we kind of just make it an extension of what we really want in this life, which is stuff. And, you know, I, I don't quite get it right in this life, but man, when I get to heaven, God will help me get the stuff that I want. I'll have my mansion, and that's not really at the heart of what's going on here. The heart of it is a relational thing. It's a proximity thing. Um, banishment on one, on one hand, unity um, with God on the other hand. That's why we're going to get to it in John 17 when Jesus prays for the last time. He prays all about us being with God and with him, that we might all be one and be together. And, and the essence of it all is this unity. It's this relationship. The, the pleasures, the, the joy, the happiness, the, the evermore is, is part of or falls out of being with God. But it's God at the center and it's in us being where he's at. Does that make sense? So the first thing we see in this passage is Jesus picking up, um, I mean, the temple in that day, uh, which is God's house, had many rooms. It was a huge, massive complex with a lot of rooms. I mean, this is familiar imagery to his disciples. He said, my, my father's house has many rooms. Um, and symbolically, I'm going there, I'm going to prepare a place. You're going to go be a part of where he's at, where he's at the center, where his presence is. It's a relational thing. Second thing that heaven is, is this. It's, um, it's our hope. So... We got another slide here. There we go. Um, it's our hope. Jesus begins this whole thing by saying, do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. And then later on, he kind of gives an, an if-then clause. And he says, if I go, if I leave, if I depart, if I go kind of set this thing up, then I will come back. Um, I'm going and I will come back, why? To get you so that you can be where I'm at. So the whole idea is Jesus is saying, look, um, I'm leaving, yeah, but, but I, I'm going to do something good. And you can get excited about that. It's, it's something you're supposed to hope in. It's something you're supposed to, to want and look forward to. Um, we got to back up here like some giant steps. Uh, uh, uh. Anyone else got any noises I can make? Um, sorry about that. 
there's a there's kind of something that's that's going on in church in the in the Christian culture that's been going on for a while in the last 30 years or so where the real trend in in teaching and preaching has has been dominated by what I would say is is the practical okay it's uh it's we're going to teach people things that are immediate have to do with right here right now and that they can go home and implement like right away practical uh practical things are you know three steps to a better marriage and four steps to handling your money better and and five steps to not hating your in-laws and you know like whatever it is right but it's it's very practical very here and now and there's a whole story behind why that's kind of been the trend or the strategy but but the practical is very different than than the eternal um, do you understand where I'm going with that? If we're talking about eternal things, um, long view of history, we're, we're talking about God, our separation from God, heaven, um, like soul things, being born again, like, I mean, big, big, huge, uh, like eternal things, right? It's the weightiest of all things. It's, it's the, the heaviest of all things. It's the most meaningful of all things, and it's not very, it has a practical component in some sense, but it, it doesn't really feel like our felt needs. Does that make sense? It, it doesn't really address the fight you got in with your wife coming in on, out of the parking lot. It doesn't really address your finances per se. There's application to it, but it, it's not practical the way three steps to this or that is. Does that make sense? Does that agree, you agree with me? Get a couple head nods maybe? Um, I mean, I think it's obvious, but, but we've gotten away from talking about eternal things. Now, it's a very modern thing. It's also uh, driven by a philosophy of ministry, um, but it's different than the way it used to be. Because of health care, because of uh, age of living, because of uh, vaccines and, and antibiotics and things like this, death is not something that we grapple with at the same level that people used to grapple with it before the modern age. And before the modern age, people were much more comfortable always talking because at, at, at all moments, the eternal, the weightiest of things was, was all around you. I mean, it was, it was huge. It was the dominant deal. You got the illnesses and the deaths and the grief and, and everything's going on. And so the weighty was like, uh, if we're not talking about hell, if we're not talking about heaven, if we're not talking about salvation, if we're not talking about the glory of God, like that our whole deal is not to use God as he's some kind of genie, but that we got to be in right relationship with God. Remember the whole proximity thing again? Like these weighty matters, like we've gotten away from that and we've gotten trivial because we've become trivial people. Is that, is that I mean... I mean, maybe we have to look at history a little long, longer to kind of ground that comment that we've become trivial people. But if you look at how many people text message in to vote for an American idol and it, and it exceeds the amount of people that vote for president, <laughs> I mean, it, it seems trivial, right? But... Um, <laughs> We're a trivial culture. We're a trivial culture. We, 
our, our sense of urgency, our sense of the now, our ability to delay gratification is, is non-existent. I mean, I went through college. <laughs> um, I, I walk around during Christmas time. Um, I don't know if you guys are like me. I spent more money on myself um, in December than I did on like buying presents. I think this is like true of a lot of guys. Because it's a, like you're actually out in stores for the first time. Like, oh, you're, you're like, oh, I forgot, I forgot I needed that. You know, like, <laughs> wow, this is cool. But I mean, I, I, you, you begin to realize like, wow, like our sense of delay of gratification, I mean, uh, it's not there. We're a trivial. So because we're a trivial culture we, and our felt needs are dominated by the trivial, we walk into churches wanting to hear trivial things. And so therefore, um, kind of when we're trying to make it work and make, make it people happy and, and buy-in and all this other stuff, we preach trivial sermons. Um, and we don't get to heaven. But heaven's our hope, you see. Like, we're supposed to do things in this life that can only, like, be rationally explained by the fact that heaven is, is factoring into our thinking, I read a quote somewhere this week where a person said one in a hundred, only one in a hundred will, will actually read the Bible. I mean, will actually ever open these pages and read it. But 99 out of 100 will read your life. And, and what they know about Christianity is going to come from your life. And our lives are supposed to be shaped and reflect and look like and and, and be visibly, noticeably changed by the presence of this thing called heaven, this hope that we have that Jesus who went to prepare a place is actually going to come and take us there, that that's what's waiting for us. And, and we are, are just different. We're strange. I mean, we don't fit. I mean, the whole idea in Scripture of we're strangers here on earth. Like, we're, we're, stra- we're, we're strangers because our true citizenship where we really belong, where we, we, uh, where we attach our, our identity, that citizenship, that's heaven. And so we're not in heaven, that means we're like um, traveling. And, and more of us act like we're on permanent vacation than we do like we're, that we're like pilgrims or strangers in the land, you know. Um, we, we get really comfortable. Now, there's a lot I could say about that. When, you, when somebody comes from the third world to America... They tend to stay. Why? It's a, it's a better reality. Okay? Um, if our citizenship is heaven, when, when you become a Christian, that's, that's your citizenship. And then you enter into this world, you know, and, and your day-to-day and the TVs and your relationships and everything else, and, and you get so comfortable that you look like someone from the third world coming to America um, that's found something better, it, it says something about how you believe in Christ. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. It says something about your faith. It says something about whether you really, truly um, believe in all this. Now, if you become a Christian, your citizenship's in heaven, and then you come into this world, and, and you live this life, and people look at you like, man, you're like a missionary. 
man, you, you, you're so focused on stuff that's different than what everyone else is focused on, and, and you're like tireless, and you pour yourself out, like Paul said, like a, like a drink offering. You just, your, your life is poured out for God, like to honor God, to please God, to be with God, and, and you just live this life like you don't even know what's going on, like you don't even know what the fashions are or the trends are, and, and it's just so different. You act like somebody leaving America and going to the third world, right? It's not making their home there, but it's there for a reason, there for a purpose. And heaven is supposed to be our hope. It's, it's supposed to be the thing that, that we're looking forward to. It's, it's the punchline. It's, it's what it's all about, and it affects us. Um, uh, my third daughter, I don't know if it was Linda Van Voorst or somebody who was at our house and was teaching the kids knock-knock jokes. So that's been the big thing the last four or five days, knock-knock jokes, driving me crazy. And my third daughter, she's four and a half. She wants to jump in on it, but she really hasn't been taught any knock-knock jokes. And so she keeps coming up and, and being like, knock-knock. Who's there? Curtain. Curtain who? <laughs> you know, and, and she laughs. And she thinks that getting me to say, like, curtain who is the funny part. You know, and, and then she'll do it again. Knock, knock. Who's there? And she'll be like, desk. You know, desk who? Ah, you know, like, <laughs> there's nothing funny. That, like, there's, it's, it, it, lacks, it lacks the part that gives it meaning, right? It, it's it's the, just this slice without the real part. And we, we, we have heaven as the real part. And when we get all excited and giggle about this slice that's not the real part and, and we're just focused, focused on like the, the practical stuff and the trivial stuff and, and what we just kind of our ears like to hear, it's fun and it's happy and, and, and gives us warm fuzzies and, and it's like a big giant Christian social club where, where priests just say that you're a good person and everything you're doing is good and oh, who cares anyways as long as you smile and be happy and, and keep tithing. Um, and help us build a really, you know, $30, $40 million building because that's, you know, what us leaders want. We're, we're building our pyramids. Um, it's not right. Heaven is our hope. Um, it's what dominates our thinking. It's, it's, what we, it's what we lay awake in bed at night longing for. Jesus... Uh, left his disciples. I mean, again, remember, he's on his way to dying here. He leaves his disciples the way a shepherd would leave his sheep. I mean, saying the most simple of all things, like, guys, I, I'll be back. I know you feel like I'm abandoning you. I know you feel like I'm leaving you, but I will be back. It's, I mean, I, I think of uh, Douglas MacArthur, like in the Philippines in World War II, and he's, he's under orders to leave his troops because it's going to fall, and and they got to get him out of there, and, and he tells his troops, I'll be back. And, and then years later, he sets foot in the Philippines, and it's this big poetic moment of, he did, he came back. You know? and, and Jesus, like that, with his people underneath him, like shepherd with sheep, is saying, look, I've got to leave. It's a strategic thing here. It's a necessary thing here. I'm going to do something good, and you, you might feel like you're going to be all alone, but I'm going to be back. And it's a very like, simple statement. And I think that sometimes when we talk about heaven, we've, we've, uh, we've developed a distaste 
of talking about heaven in simplistic terms, or at least a strand of people have. Because I've, when we talk about it in simple terms, it, it, begin, it can begin to feel to some people like it's simplistic. And then simplistic begins to feel like we're just making it all up. Just, just, to, just to make people feel good. You, you see kind of how that goes? Like, um, it, Jesus is saying something simple. Well, like we always just talk about heaven like, like it's, it's just the answer to all the problems. And like, you know, you're just going to go there. Wow, it doesn't really argue for heaven. doesn't really ground heaven. doesn't really prove heaven. It's just this like pie in the sky, like giving somebody a, a placebo, making them feel good in the moment type of thing. And what I think we see with Jesus is, look, if you, really, if, if you really get it, if you really get who Jesus is, you really get what he's saying, you, ha- you have to talk about it in simple terms. Uh, these people need to hear from, from their, um, their leader. And he's leaving, and he's saying, look, let me explain the bigger picture. And it's, it's really simple. I'm going to come back. Um, so look forward to that. Look ahead to that. Wait in expectation for that. It's, it's a simple message. It's a big message. It's a, it's a heavy message. But it's one that, that our faith really, like, we either take and receive and believe it or we don't. And that leads right into this third point. And that's that as Jesus is talking here, um, it's simplistic, but he, he in no way means to say that it's not true. I'm just trying to make you feel good. Um, according to Jesus, heaven is real. So let's look at this again. It says, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus says in Luke 23, he's being crucified, and there's a guy next to him, and he says to the guy, I tell you the truth. Verily, verily, in, in the Greek, it's amen, amen. It's, I tell you the truth. Um, today you will be with me in paradise. This is true. Jesus is saying, look, I'm not trying to just make you feel better. I'm really trying to get you to understand that I'm speaking truth, that, that I mean this. If it wasn't true, if I knew it not to be true, I would tell you that it wasn't true. It is, it is true. Hear me now. So Jesus is wanting to say, look, it's your hope. And then he comes along and there's this whole thing of saying, your hope has to be grounded in something you're confident in. And and he's saying, be confident in in this. Believe in me. Believe in God. This is true. Heaven is real. Uh, Paul in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he just puts it as simple as simple can be. And he says, listen, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, if this isn't real, if our hope is, is not grounded in something real, then we're the most to be pitied of all men. Because we're living so radically, so, so different, so other, so sacrificially, so, so like strangers on this earth, that if there is no heaven that we're looking forward to, it's not real, then we just made a big gamble and, and, and crapped out. So we'd be the most pitied of all men. And in this whole uh, felt needs kind of practical Christianity of the last 30 years, we're doing something really interesting. We're, we're almost trying to extract the value regardless of the eternal side of things. Let me explain that to you. Um, I sometimes watch fights. I'm sorry. It's an analogy. It's just 
whatever. Uh, but I was talking to a friend, you know, during a recent fight that I was watching. I was just like, yeah, if I was ever going to be a fighter, um, I mean, in, in hypothetical terms, like, I told him, like, I would tie my chin down and walk around for a month. Why? Well, the reason is, um, if you leave your chin hanging out there in a fight, you're going to get knocked the heck out. I mean, you're supposed to tuck your chin when you're boxing, right, when you're fighting. And so I was like, you know, I would, I would find a way to, to harness my, my, my head, put my chin down, walk around like that for a month so that it would just, like, reshape my natural way of doing it so that in a fight I would just naturally, like, have this great, like, posture or whatever, right? Um, but this, is, this isn't real. This is just contorted to bring about a state of affairs that seems pragmatic. You following me? What we're doing to Christianity lately is we're using spiritual principles to, to contort ourselves into certain ways because we think that there's maybe wisdom in it, spiritual principles. And if we contort ourselves that way, then what ultimately happens is our life is better. The state of affairs, the pragmatic realities are, are more fun or more pleasurable or more harmonious. That, that our life here, our finances, our relationships, our marriages, our, our things with our kids will be better. But, but see, we're, that's where we're fixated is, is, is this. And so, so we kind of begin to approach Christianity like it's got these principles that we want to like use to kind of bend and shape the way we live and the way we teach and the way we interact so that we're going to be happier and more fulfilled. It's not that happiness is bad. It's not that satisfaction is bad. It's not that fulfilled is bad. I mean, Scripture unabashedly talks about joy. And there's pleasures evermore at God's right hand. But it talks about those pleasures and that happiness being derivative from us being with God. And this, that proximity again, there's truth there and there's reality there and that relationship works its way through us. And when we get to John 15, we're going to see that there's actually a power um, that works through us and reshapes our character. It's not pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but God, when we kind of submit to him, he actually works in, in reshaping us. Like It's like divine power and energy, the Holy Spirit works through you and reshapes who you are, makes you new. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, all these kinds of things. And so we, we realize that joy and happiness are derivative of proximity of relationship with God. But when we rip that part out and in our kind of hedonistic kind of culture, in our now culture, our pragmatic culture, and say, I just want the, I just want the honey, and, and what will get that honey for me? Well, I don't mind bending and contorting a little bit, if, but the honey's driving it now. And the scriptures, like instead of telling me truth, I'm going to mine them for just good principles to contort my body to get the honey. Does that make sense? You don't have to agree with me. It's, it's, just, it's how I see it. Um, but Jesus came to say that heaven is real. If it were not so, I would have told you, look, you're supposed to live in such a way that just is radically nonsensical. Radically counter the honey. Like, you deny your own life. Take up your, your cross and follow me. It, it, it mean, when Jesus calls a man 
to himself. He calls him to come and die, said Bonhoeffer. And, and Paul says, when, when I'm alive to Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Like me is dying in this equation. This, this self-centered life is dying because I want to be with God. So it's, it's radically counterintuitive if you're trying to maximize the pleasure of this world, that kind of pleasure. So we've got this program going on in Christianity that's radically unchristian. And Jesus is, is talking to a group of guys that are living in a different context. Man, they've sold everything. They've leveraged everything. There's a bounty on their heads. There's death threats coming against them. They're running around, sneaking around. They're afraid. And Jesus says, look, it's okay. If it wasn't true, if it wasn't real, if you couldn't bank on this, if you couldn't leverage against this, if you couldn't borrow against the reality of heaven, I would have told you that. I would have told you, but it's real. I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. And um, you know, I think there's, let's back up maybe just a little bit here. Um, I don't know if you ever experienced this, but life is never quite the way I want it to be. It, it just doesn't go, like, on all levels the way I want it to be. Like, I'll go to lunch with somebody and be sarcastic and crack jokes all lunch, and then I'll get in my car and drive away, and I'll be like, it's not what I wanted. Like, I wanted to connect with that person. Like, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to do something meaningful there. I wanted to love them and be loved and instead I, I we just stayed superficial what is what's going on there it's just hugely unsatisfying and it's not the way it's supposed to be and and i turn on the news and it's not the way it's supposed to be and, and i look at churches no church is perfect and it's not the way it's supposed to be and it's broke we all know what we want for the ideal, like what utopia would look like. We, we all know if everything was just a Hollywood deal, we know what that would look like. We, we aim at it. We sometimes delude ourselves into thinking it can happen more than it really can. But Jesus, Jesus didn't show up and fix all that stuff right then. Jesus came and, and took the first part of the problem out of the equation. And that's that there's all this mess because sin separated us from God. So Jesus shows that God's a loving God, that he's going to bridge this gap. And, and Jesus comes down and he takes away the sin part. But, you know, those disciples were scared. It wasn't utopia. He didn't usher in a kingdom right then and there where everything was perfect. There's people that wanted him to. They were clamoring to make him king, but that's not what he was doing. And, and he dealt with the spiritual side of it. And, and then he says the, the reality side of it, the, the utopia side, the, the, when it's finally said and done part of it, the lasting part of it, the eternal part of it, see, that's, that's next. And I'm going to do that next. But that's just as real as this is real. And if it wasn't so, I would have told you. And I'm going to bring you there to be with me. What I'm beginning here by, by like removing the sin thing allows for this proximity to be healed on a spiritual level. We can have fellowship with God. 
We, we know it in part now. We, we begin to see it now. We begin to feel it now. But heaven, this heaven that Jesus talks about being real, is when that thing is final. Um, it's not now. Tam and I, uh, we're not supposed to say these things to groups of people, but we watched this movie called Mean Girls on New Year's Day, New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve. Is, we're, we're really boring. We have four kids and New Year's Eve, we're there by ourselves watching this high school, like, flick, right? The, uh, I think I've seen about a dozen of those in the last 10 years with the same storyline. High school, and everything that's true about high school is in the movie. You know, the cattiness, the pettiness, the, the clicks, and the thises, and the thats, and the backstabbing, and the gossip, and the, the, all of it, the hurt. And they all start that way, the high school movies. And then, and you resonate with them because they, they, that stuff's true, right? And then it comes to the end and some high school kid, some 16, 17-year-old in the movie, all of a sudden, like, like a prophet, you know, ends up in front of all the high schoolers and somehow magically gives a little speech or something and everyone becomes a better person. And they all become one body, one fraternal entity in that high school. And I, I, I laughed so hard after that movie thinking about it. I was like, everything's so true in that movie until the end. Like, high schoolers don't fix those problems. They make them worse. You stab me in the back, I'm going to stab you in the back. And I know how this game's played. I mean, no high school magically transforms itself into the perfect society. Um, But it shows something about our longings, doesn't it? it? It says that this is true. And it and it shows us what we're really hungry for. And what we're really hungry for is this resolution over here. But it's not, it's not now. Um, that's not the reality we live in. And so who we are, what we do how we think, how we pray, how we make decisions, all of this stuff somehow has to take into account this reality as well as this reality. And that while we're over here, there's a God who is promised to be with us if we will submit to him and that together um, he will use us and give us gifts, spiritual gifts, uh, and he will go before us and he will comfort us as he uses us to begin to do what he wants to do with his kingdom, which is bring healing to this, this scar, this wound, this separation, this break that happened between him and humanity. And that as this thing works out, it's, it's called the church. It's, it's the missio dei, the mission of God, that as he's working through the church to reach the nations, it's light. It penetrates the darkness. It's attractive. It's, it's like instead of being left out in the cold, we're supposed to be here with God in relationship. It's under the wing, the metaphor of being under the wing or a strong tower or a shelter or a rock. And the problem is, is we're so cracked up on our little drugs in American culture. And I mean that in a symbolic way. All our ways of coping, all our ways of, of filling the void, all our ways of, of satiating that hunger that instead of looking at God in this relationship, we'd be with God and saying, I'll trade anything 
to go be with God. Like, we're so cracked up that we're like, I'm not going to get rid of the things that are, are, are keeping me glued together. I'm, I'm finding my salvation here. I'm not willing to let go of this to find true salvation. And so with this heaven thing, what's amazing about it is uh, communion. If we don't understand this heaven thing, that it's relational, that it's our hope, that it's real, we don't understand communion. Communion is taking over a metaphor that happened in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus with with a bunch of slaves that were moaning and groaning out to God for deliverance. God, bring us back, restore us, save us. And they're groaning, they're crying out, and God sends a deliverer and then symbolically spares the firstborn son when the firstborn son of all those around gets killed. Um, That's the whole idea of the Passover, passing over houses that had the blood of a lamb on, on the door. It's the Passover feast, the, the Jewish Passover feast. And Jesus says, look, this world that's spiritually separated and dead from God, that's groaning. I've come to be the deliverer because we have a God who saves. And I've come as that deliverer, you see. And, and like the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, I'm dying that, that it might be passed over and that you'll live and that you'll be brought out. And so when you do communion... When you do this Passover meal now, instead of looking back to Egypt and Moses and the Passover lamb, you see you're looking back to me. And you're looking back to what I'm doing here to bring salvation to God's people that you may be with him again, like it was meant to be in the beginning. And you celebrate that because that touchstone, that symbolic thing is going to help you, help encourage you, help help affirm you, help sustain you as you walk through the difficult realities of this life and remind you that that, that God who saves then is the God who's still going to save here and that when I say I'm going to prepare a place, I'm actually going to bring you there, that there's something that you're grounding your hope in, that it's real. And so communion is all about this idea of heaven, that it's relational and that, that, that our hope is wrapped up in it and that it's real. And when we do it, we cry out, not as people that, that don't need to cry out because we're patching ourselves together with the little like drugs, symbolically, not literally. Um, we cry out as people that know that we need God, that, that there's a desperation there that says, if not for you, unless you do something here, it's all vanity. Unless you do something here, it's just a waste. It's all meaningless. And I, you know, might as well not even get out of bed in the morning. Like there's no, nothing driving any of it. Why even be a good father? God, I'm hungry. Like it hurts, the pain, the backstabbing, the rumors, the enemies, the difficulties, the trials. It all hurts, God, and I can't bear that. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary. And so we say we don't want the silly stuff. That stuff's worthless. It's like cotton candy. It just does not satisfy. And we trade that. We give away all to come to Christ to to, to get real salvation just like those slaves in Egypt. And that's why in the New Testament, sin is referred to as slavery, slaves to sin, or being made alive to righteousness. And righteousness righteousness really means rightness with God. It's that whole proximity thing again. So this morning, like if anything I'm saying is ringing any kind of a bell, 
Um, how would I break that down? What would be the essence of that? Um, there's a type of Christianity that's not Christianity. Okay? Um, there's a type of Christianity that I think is ill-informed and confused and lost because it hasn't heard the eternal and it doesn't know that we're supposed to act in light of this hope and that that hope is real and that when we do things like communion, there's a whole thing going on there spiritually that God has provided for us to sustain us and grow us and make us alive and that there's joy that will come about being right with God, with God. And then there's a Christianity over here that's, that's full, that's real Christianity and full Christianity. Not Christianity, Christianity that's not full, not mature. And this is what Jesus wanted over here. It's true Christianity that's also mature. And it's like, um, if I'm alive, it's Christ living in me. And if I'm going to live, uh, I'm going to be here pouring my life out, doing what God wants me to do for other people, working as an ambassador of Christ, someone sent from a different land to work here in a way that just doesn't make sense. And because it's so radical and so difficult, I'm going to pray like no one I know. I'm going to fast like no one I know. I'm going to read my Bible like no one I know. I'm going to make decisions with my money, my time, my energy like nobody I know. And I'm going to hold myself to a standard of purity and, and character and wisdom like nobody I know. And it's going to be hard, but I've got someone with me sustaining me in this. This is what I want for our church. This is really all I aim at. Um, you've heard me say before, I see myself as an internal outreach pastor. People that wander into Antioch that are here, I want to save you out of unchristianity that masquerades as Christianity and tell you there's a joy that, that that's, you just can't fathom when you, you really get back to being with God, right with God, in proximity with God, doing what God wants you to do, and having that whole thing going on in you. There's a joy there despite trials. That's why James could say, consider your trials pure joy that, that I want for you. I want your happiness more than you want it. I want it so bad for you that I'm willing to call you to suffer that you might gain the right kind of happiness that will satisfy you. I don't want you, just like I don't want my kids eating cotton candy. I'm pretty weird about snack foods and junk foods. I know it's going to give them a tummy ache, so I don't let them eat cotton candy. I don't want this for you because I care about you. Father, um, I just pray for this church. Let it only be your church, nobody else's church. Correct what is wrong, improve what can be made better, Discipline what needs to be disciplined. Breathe life to where there's death. But I want nothing more for this church than to be your church filled with people that have a hope in you that is just discernible. That the people that read their lives cannot miss it. It's unmistakable. So God, fill us with a faith that is up for that task. In Christ's name.